Praise the Lord, everybody. Hallelujah! It is good to be yet standing before you this Sunday, the 12th of June. We're just so thankful to God for all of his grace and his truth and his mercy, his loving kindness, and especially for you who've tuned in and are with us this morning to share some time as we discuss the Word of God. You know, the last few weeks we've been talking about the Word of God, and I've been spending a lot of time specifically talking about how awesome and wonderful the Word of God is. For the last few weeks, I've been sharing with you my amazement with God's Word to help you appreciate the absolute necessity of Scripture. I want to share with you today four concepts, just four. Maybe I can get out of your way quickly, but I want to touch on, actually, let, let me just do this. Let me, let me just drop it to three concepts today, and we'll add the fourth next week. I want to share with you three concepts today that will enable you to accurately learn and share the word of the Lord. I'll give you all four that I'm going to talk about over the next two weeks, which is revelation, inspiration, illumination, and reception. But today, I'll just focus on the first three, and we'll get into that fourth one next week. But let's talk about revelation. Revelation is like unmasking the mass singer to see who's behind that mask. That one that you've been looking at and listening to all the clues and trying to figure out who it is. Maybe you don't know what the, uh, the mass singer is. And maybe I'll get as saved as you one day and stop looking at television. But there's a show where people get into this costume and they give clues about who they are. And of course, they're all famous people. And you have to figure out who's behind the mask. Well, Revelation is like the time of the unmasking of that masked singer to find out who it is that's standing behind the mask. And as far as scripture goes, revelation involves divine disclosure, God unveiling him, himself and information about himself that he wants us to know. Now, the reason revelation is critical is that we only get to know about God what God decides to reveal about himself. Now, God is utterly, totally different from you and me. Let me just put that out on the forefront. He, he's not like us. As a matter of fact, he's so different from us that theologians who study the word of God call him the holy other. Now, we are made in his image, but he is distinct from his creation and separate from sin. Even to see him is to, is to die. Exodus 33 and 20 tells us this. But apart from God, apart from God, apart from Christ, we cannot understand who he is. God said through the prophet Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You can check the text if you don't believe me. It's the 55th. 8th and the ninth verse. But instead of recognizing God as wholly different, people have always tried to create God in their own image, after their own likeness, to fit their box. 
And whenever we try to adjust God to how we think or how we feel, we're left with something other than the God who reveals himself. We also try to advise him on how to be God. Have you ever, uh, and this isn't just a slam on people, but, and, and, and let me just be crystal clear. I've done this myself. But have you ever been in prayer and decided that you were going to counsel God on how things should go? You were going to share with God your intuition, your wisdom, give him some direction on how things should play out, who it is you should be with, what it is you should have, the job, the promotion, whatever it is. We've never been God. We've never created anything. But we want to give counsel to God, the creator of all things. However, God must reveal himself if we are ever to know him because he is so much higher than we are. So what is the nature of God's self-revelation in Scripture? Well, we have one answer in the 55th chapter of Isaiah. God's word is that which goes forth from his mouth. Verse 11. That is, God's revelation is intensely personal. I said uh, a few weeks ago that the Bible was written for a congregation, for a unity of people, but it was also intimately written for you. It was God's desire to reveal himself to the masses, but it's also God's desire to reveal himself intimately to you. That's why scripture hits us all different, depending on where we are or what we're dealing with in life. God's revelation is intensely personal. It is in, intimately tied to who he is. So when you open your Bible, you're not just engaging in academic study. You are really trying to understand who God is. In scripture, God unveils himself. And when you look in the word, you see God. And as we see in Hebrews 4, the 12th and the 13th verses, the Bible is not just an inanimate object. It's alive because it is the word of a living God who reveals himself in a personal way. You see, God's revelation is also purposeful. He says that when he sends forth his word, what? It will not return to him empty or it will not return void. It will not come back without accomplishing what it is that he desires and without succeeding in the matter for which it was sent. Moreover, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. 2 Timothy 3 and 16 teaches us this. It acts. It does the things in our lives that God purposes need to be done. God doesn't lay his revelation out for us to look over and to vote on. He doesn't just toss words around with no purpose uh, in mind. Every word that comes from God's mouth is infused with life and his purpose. And because God's word is also infused with his life, it has the power to bring that purpose to pass. God's word always produces the effect that God intends. You see, he, there's, a, there's a show that I like to watch, uh, Stargate, and in this series of, on Stargate, there were these um, 
basically humanity that had advanced uh, to the point where they could transcend their physical um, appearance. But one of the things that uh, we learn about this race called the ancients in this series on television is every time they, they were really smart, but every time they tried to do something, there were catastrophic consequences. And a lot of things that they didn't mean to happen, happened. Even as smart as they were, they're, they're portrayed as being super intellectually intelligent. Yet they constantly had to deal with effects of the things that they did that they didn't mean to happen. But God's word always produces the exact effect that God intends. Amen. A third characteristic of Revelation is that it is particular. The Bible is the complete word of God for us. But it does not claim to be a total description of what God is or what he's like or a total record of everything that God does. Amen. Matter of fact, the last verse in the Gospel of John is uh, really important for us. The, the apostles say that if all the things Jesus did were written down in detail, even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written, John 21 and 25. So even if that statement is hyperbolic, it is still amazing. Remember, John is just talking about a brief slice of Jesus' early life, his three-year ministry. The Gospels just give us the highlights of Jesus' ministry, the selective details the Holy Spirit wants us to know about Jesus' ministry, about Jesus' life here in the earth. Deuteronomy 29 and 29 says the secret things belong to our Lord, our God. But the things revealed, hey, they belong to us. So what God has told us about himself is what he wants us to know. But he has not told us everything there is to know because we could not comprehend everything that he is. Amen. The vastness, even the complete beauty even the utter truth of who he is would literally blow our mind. It would put us into overload. The opening verse of Hebrews makes clear that the revelation of God is also progressive. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, his, uh, has spoken to us in his son. So the God who spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament speaks in the New Testament to us through Christ. God gave us his revelation one step at a time, not all at once. He gave us what we needed to know. As a matter of fact, sometimes God tells us, you're on a need-to-know basis. And though we want to know, God says, you're not ready to know. So I'm going to tell you what you need to know. I'm going to reveal for you what is necessary to get you to the next step. So as I build you, as you grow in me, you can understand more about me. Then there's inspiration. So we've talked about revelation, the unveiling, pulling out 
what God wants us to know. Then there's the inspiration. And while revelation is concerned with the content of scripture, inspiration is concerned with the recording of that content. Now this word inspire has become watered down in our everyday language and usage. We say I was inspired by the choir or the preacher inspired me with his amazing sermon. And that was an inspiring poem. We mean the person or the thing made us feel good. It caused our spirit or better yet our emotional state of being to be elevated even if but for a moment. And that's a weak use of the word that does not properly express even the biblical concept. I, I just read for you a moment ago from 2 Timothy 3 and 16, all scripture is inspired by God. Now the Greek word that's used is made up of two words, the word for God and a word that means to breathe out or to exhale. So a better understanding is that all scripture is the exhaling breath of God. Amen. He exhaled the word upon the readers who recorded it. So when we talk about inspiration, we're talking about the process by which God oversaw the composition of Scripture so that the message is recorded without error. Now, you may uh, see in your reading of Scripture that, uh, you know, some translations of 2 Timothy 3 and 16 will say all, while others say every. Now, the Greek adjective pause can denote every, putting the emphasis on each and every scripture, or it can mean all, highlighting the unity of the scripture itself. So the difference in emphasis on the individual parts of every or the whole of all does not change the meaning that the apostle Paul was trying to convey in scripture. We can safely assert from this verse that the totality of scripture in its individual parts and in its whole is in fact inspired, breathed out, exhaled by God. Amen. So when Paul writes that all scripture is inspired by God, he is referring to the biblical canon, which uh, for him was the Old Testament. A lot of people miss this mark. We want to do away with the Old Testament. We, we think that the Old Testament is out of time and out of date and has no purpose or meaning. But when Paul and the apostles were here, there was no New Testament. And since the New Testament had not been completed, the Old Testament was the apostles' scripture. Now this should help to explain texts that are found in the Bible such as Acts 1 and 16 where Peter is talking about the need to replace Judas among the apostles and he says brethren the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. In verse 20, Peter went on to, to quote Psalm 69 and 25 and Psalm 109 and 8, and then he applied those texts to Judas. Now the question is, who was speaking in the Psalms? Was it the Holy Spirit or was it David? David wrote the verse, but Peter said the Holy Spirit spoke it. So the Bible claims that what its human authors wrote is the same as the spoken 
word of God. It's the word that was exhaled. It's the word that was breathed out of the mouth of God. So how did this process give us a Bible that is free from error, even though imperfect human beings are involved and we're in the, uh, uh, you know, in the picture, so to speak? Why, I touched upon this last week at length when I taught on the canonicity of Scripture, but let's quickly debrief what we've learned so far. The Apostle Peter, who was one of those imperfect human beings, tells us how it happened. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. So the Greek word that's used here, that's translated, moved, means to be carried or driven along. So like... The wind drives the sail of a ship. This word is used in Acts 27 and 15 to describe what happened when the ship that Paul was on got into a terrible storm and was eventually destroyed. When the ship was caught in the storm and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. It's the wind that's pushing the boat that you cannot ignore, nor can you control. Now, if you compare this ideology or this thinking, this uh, description with 2 Peter 1 and 21, you get the picture of how divine inspiration works. What the wind was to the sail of that ship, the Holy Spirit is to the writers of Scripture. They were moved upon by the Spirit where he wanted them to go, not where they wanted to go. You see, they wrote what God wanted them to write. To put it uh, another way, the writers of Scripture were at the mercy of the, of the Spirit. They didn't lose their personalities because every biblical writer has his own style and, and vocabulary. And this is why it, it, you'll hear me often say when I'm ministering that it's okay for a preacher, a teacher, a, a, a pastor, uh, whoever, to have a style. It's okay for people to enjoy someone's style. But there is so much more necessary for the believer than just the style of someone speaking, but the content of what's being spoken. So it's okay to have a style, but it's not about my style. Now, every biblical writer had a style. They had a vocabulary that was their own. But God expressed his perfect revelation through the various personalities of these men that were moved upon by the Holy Spirit. Now, the four Gospels are a great example of God utilizing the personality, the skill, and the history of, uh, of the human authors to portray his word the way he intended. You see, they record many of the same stories of Jesus, but we can see key differences in how the author's voice is used as the stories are being detailed. You see, just as the Holy Spirit protected Jesus, the living word from sin, you can read about that in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, so he protects the Bible, the written word, from error through his influence in the writing of Scripture itself. So to suggest that there were errors in the written word is to equally suggest that there is sin in Jesus. And since Jesus testified to the validity of the written word, 
The Spirit guarded the truth of God in a miraculous way so that what was written is what God said. As a matter of fact, let me just tell you how John put it. John said it like this. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God then is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. These things I have written to you, 1 John 5, 9 and 11 and 13. Now, I want you to notice that, uh, that last phrase, the witness from God became a written revelation from God to his people. So God, the Holy Spirit, inspired John to write what he wanted us to know in a language that we could understand. Why? So we would have a permanent record of God's witness. So the result of inspiration is this. Because of the overseeing and superintending work of the Spirit in the recording of Scripture, what you and I have is the inerrant authoritative canon of Scripture, the Bible. And in the Bible, we have the authoritative revelation of God preserved in a written record that is personal and intimate to the reader. So those who reject the inspiration of scripture have to do battle with Jesus Christ because Jesus believed it was the word of God. He says in Matthew 5, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, the smallest letter or stroke is the familiar one jot or one tittle. Now, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet is written like an apostrophe that we see in the English language. And a stroke is a tiny line that distinguishes one Hebrew letter from another Hebrew letter. What Jesus was saying is God's word is so true and authoritative that it will be fulfilled down to the most minute portion of a Hebrew letter. Amen. In fact, even after this universe is gone, God's word will still be in effect. <laughs> the result of inspiration is that the word of God cannot possibly fail. Why is this exciting? Because the word of God cannot possibly fail. That means that what God's word says is true. Amen. That means when I look at life and everything around me and I apply scripture to the things that I'm seeing and I see the manifestation and the fulfillment of prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, I don't have to fear because I believe I've accepted the Lord Jesus and because I know his word is true. This is just a sign to me of his coming. And I'm not sad that he's coming. I'm sad that some people will miss it. But I'm not sad he's coming. You see, God's word cannot fail. Proverbs 35 through 6 says, every word of God is tested. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you. And you will be proved a liar. You see, God doesn't need yours or my help to get his message recorded. If he wanted more written, guess what? He would have written more. In the upper room, Jesus prophesied that though uh, that through the uh, Holy Spirit, he would remind the apostles of everything they would need to know. 
So when they sat down to write scripture, the Spirit saw to it that everything was written just as God willed it to be written. Jesus said in John 10 and 35, the scripture cannot be broken. And this means that it is binding. You see, there's no escape clause. There's no gray area. There's, no, there's nothing in it that they need to go back and rework because someone has figured out a way around it. No single part can be extracted from the whole. It's either all God's word or none of God's word. Now, some people want to take uh, out parts of the Bible that they don't like. But Jesus warned us against this. He says, don't negate the word of God for the traditions of men. Don't let what men have always done and believed stop you from doing what God says. Mark 7, 8 and 9. Illumination. Not Illuminati. Illumination. Now, the word illumination simply means enlightenment. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that allows us to understand, experience, and apply the truth of God to our lives. Archimedes was a famous scientist in ancient Greece. And it is said that after toiling over theory after theory and test after test, when Archimedes finally fine-tuned a process to identify the purity of gold, he cried out with a term that has stayed with us ever since. He declares, Eureka! Now the Greek term means, I found it. So as time went on, this term Eureka was popularly associated with the excitement that comes when you finally understand something. So really for us, Eureka is more of the light bulb moment. You know, that moment when suddenly it hits you. When what was once shrouded in obscurity finally becomes clear. You know, the word illumination shares this same sense. It finds its root in the term illume, which means to light up. So if you've ever studied a foreign language, you may be able to recall when you finally understood what you read. People often speak of, mo- of a moment when the language clicked for them. And they could operate with a deeper understanding of how the language worked. I remember when I was talking to um, one of the golf instructors at the uh, golf course that I frequented a lot. He was trying to give me a tip. And I was trying this tip and I was trying it and I just could not get this tip to work. And then all of a sudden, it's like someone turned the light on. And then the ball started doing exactly what he said it would do when I applied the the tip that he gave me and when the understanding of what it was he was getting me to do settled in. Now, in in this example or uh, the example of, uh, you know, understanding language or, you know, the example of Archimedes, you know, all these different things, there was still a time of unknowing, a time where darkness prevailed. 
the darkness and the unknowing will always precede the enlightenment or the eureka moment in the same way we have all experienced these same moments when we do not understand what we are reading in the Bible. That's one of the most often things I hear people complain to me about. The Bible's too hard to understand. But Paul prays in Ephesians 1 and 18 that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why? So that the saints would understand the greatness of God's power and blessings that are available to them. 1 John 2 and 27 says that every believer has what John calls the anointing. That is the ability to receive, understand, and apply spiritual truth. Now, I want you to understand something, people of God. There are no super saints when it comes to understanding Scripture. God wants every believer to be illuminated concerning his truth. The only catch is whether we are committed enough to seek illumination. I am one who likes to get the latest and the greatest technology that's available. I know this may come as a shock to those that know me, but I'm kind of into tech stuff. And there was a time when, uh, you know, direct TV was considered cutting edge television with high definition signals, which enhanced the viewing experience that encapsulated uh, sound to a level that normal uh, cable just couldn't bring you. So you guessed it. I ordered it much to my wife's amazement. And at one point I was having some issues with the reception. So I called the company for help. They send a repairman out and he tells me, your signal is strong, but your antenna is pointed in the wrong direction. And he explained to me that the antenna needed to be aligned with the satellites that were in the sky. So the antenna had to point in a certain direction, in a certain manner, so that it can, could connect to the satellites that were in the sky. So only then would I be able to enjoy what I was paying for. Well, now the word of God is strong. Amen. Its signal is strong. You see, there's no problem with the signal of the word of God. But the antenna of our heart is often not pointed in the right direction. And a lot of us are fiddling with our lives, trying to fix our lives uh, in, in our own way, fix them when the problem is that our spiritual antenna is simply not pointed in the right direction. And because we are not aligned with his word, we cannot pick up the strength of his signal. But we all have the anointing within us, the illumination, the illuminating work of the spirit of God. And that's why the psalmist wrote these verses in Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You see, the Spirit of God shines His light on the Word of God. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, we discover that the Spirit was hovering over creation. Then in verse 3, God said, let there be light. And guess what? Light was not present until the Spirit of God hovered. Why is this important to us? Because when the Spirit of God hovers and the Word of God speaks, order comes out of chaos. And that's what happened in creation. And that is what is happening in your life. Amen. You see, the earth was formless and void before the Spirit and the light came into existence. 
Does your life ever feel formless or void? Does your life ever feel empty or chaotic? Do you move from chaos to order when the Spirit illuminates God's Word for you? You see, that happens not when you simply read your Bible, but when you submit your heart to God's Word and you ask His Spirit to move. Then God brings order out of chaos. In 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, Paul makes some great statements concerning, uh, you know, what I'm talking about. He says, just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of men, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things also we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So when the Spirit takes spiritual words, the Word of God, and combines them with spiritual thought, a mind and a heart in tune with God, the result is divine illumination. And when you combine a spiritually receptive mind with the Word, you have dynamite on your hands because he who is spiritual apprises all things since he has the mind of Christ. Luke 24, 13 through 35 tells the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And I'm moving to my clothes. I told you I wouldn't be before you long today. It gives us a real life look at how the process of illumination works and I just want to illuminate something for you today if you remember this is when the the two uh, disciples were walking back to Emmaus from Jerusalem they were depressed they were discouraged and they were downtrodden you see life had fallen in for them because Jesus had been crucified you see they they, they weren't expecting Jesus to die on a cross they were expecting Jesus to uh, lead a uh, military victory they saw no hope. They saw no way out of their dilemma. There was no way to recover. But then the risen Christ joined them on the road. And he asked, why are you discouraged? Well, they explained the situation. Really, if you read the scripture, it says that they explained it with like amazement. Like, where have you been under a rock? They shared their disappointment. And Jesus says to them, Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Then he taught them from the scriptures. What were those scriptures? No, it wasn't Philippians. It wasn't Corinthians. It was the Old Testament. In other words, they had not been paying attention to what God had already revealed. Oftentimes, you are in a state of depression or hopelessness simply because you have not paid attention to what God has already revealed. In effect, Jesus was saying, you two are discouraged for no reason. If you would have just listened to the word of God, you would know what has happened is fulfillment of prophecy. 
And because they weren't listening to the word, they were unnecessarily depressed. But when Jesus began teaching them and they listened, you see, if you want the illumination of the spirit, the first thing you need is a listening ear to hear what the word of God is saying. Then you need to combine a listening ear with the will to be transformed. Verse 28 says that Jesus acted as though he were going farther, but they begged him, stay with us. I think Jesus was testing them to see whether they really wanted him or uh, they were just going through the spiritual motions. You see, God does this with us. He will let us hear the word and then he will bring something into our lives to see whether we really heard the word or whether we were just passively sitting in church or doing rote devotions, uh, you know, in that moment. He'll bring something or allow something into the life of his people to put what they have already heard or studied or been trained in to test. So we have a listening here. And a willing heart. These are the two key elements in experiencing illumination. If you're not experiencing the illumination of the word of God in your life, one of these two things are broken. A listening ear or a willing heart. The third element is worship. You see, Jesus reclined at the table with these two disciples as the story continues, and they essentially worshiped. In fact, we can see many of the same elements in verse 30 that we find later in the second chapter of Acts. You see, there was communion in the breaking of bread, in prayer, in the fellowship of believers. Koinonia, the fellowship of believers. And this Jesus shared the word with them. And when all of that was working, what happens next? Well, the Bible says in Luke 24 and 31, their eyes were opened. You see, what it's saying is, is illumination occurred. They had their eureka moment. The light bulb came on. They were enlightened. They recognized him. Even though Jesus vanished from their sight in that instant, everything was changed. They were alive and filled with joy. They had full excitement and they couldn't wait to share it with others. As a matter of fact, the text tells us that they got up and ran back to Jerusalem that same night and they excitedly shared with the apostles all the things that had happened to them. And it's important to see that illumination of the word by the spirit allows every believer to understand the Holy Scripture. And if you think about it, you hold in your hand 66 books written by and for kings and priests, but also written by and for shepherds and fishermen. God has the uncanny ability of wrapping up the most profound in an accessible format. The Protestant reformers called this the perspicuity of Scripture. That's the Bible could be understood through the guidance of the spirit by king and clergy and commoner alike. It is this principle that drives the, uh, the heroic effort of reformers like Martin Luther and William Tyndale in the 16th century to translate the scripture into the most common language of their people so that everyone would have the opportunity to read and to study and to apply God's word. Why do we come to church? 
Why do we hear preachers? Why do we listen to the things that are being said? So that we can understand. So that the illumination of God's word can come into your life. And as you apply it with a listening ear and a willing heart. You can explode in that eureka moment. And you can say, I've got it. You see, my primary job as a pastor and a leader in the body of Christ is not only to further explain scripture, but also to equip you to study the Bible for yourself so you can apply it to your life. You see, in Revelation, God discloses his truth through inspiration. He sees that it is recorded for us. And by the illumination of his spirit, he enables us to understand it and to apply it. And when you get all of this working in your life, you're going to grow as a kingdom disciple and enjoy your own eureka moment. And every time the enemy comes and tries to break your spirit, you'll be able to say, I've got it. The living word of God. I've got it. I understand what God is doing. I've got it. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I got it. I am well and in good health, prospering in my body, even as my soul is prospering in the Lord. I got it. I know what it says. I believe what it says. I apply what it says. And only what it says is true. It's so important for you as a believer to hold on to what God has said because only what God has said matters everything else is just information everything else is just waiting to be validated or discredited by that which is true only that which is true comes from the word of God. God bless you. Heaven smile upon you. And to my friend Brian Spann, if you're watching, I kept it at 40 minutes. Have a great and a wonderful Sunday. Amen.